From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. And I'm Adam Tuss. Coming up, safe track shifts to Northern Virginia and Reagan National Airport. Now, Metro expects falling ridership to recover. We're going to look ahead to 2026. And our listeners are asking, why is Metro always asking for money? We'll have the answer as we embark on Episode 6 of the Metropocalypse. The D.C. Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delay in crowded conditions on trains and platforms. In 2026 and beyond, D.C. will not have cars operating in its core. Cars driven by people. All right, first thing is, how did you get in here? I know people. How did you get in here? How did this happen? NBC4's Adam Tuss, transportation reporter, joining us uh, this week. And, uh, well, it's good to see you. How you doing? You should also mention longtime friend, because I think people think we have this uh, transportation uh, bromance uh, or infighting, but we've known each other for quite a while. Actually, I think we can call it a bromance. I have uh, <laughs> very sincere and heartfelt feelings for you, and I'm glad that you're uh, here today. How about that? Yeah, but I think at the end of the day, both Martin and I are both really interested in making sure Metro is doing what it's supposed to do, and and I think we'd both like to see it turn around. Yeah, for the sake of the region and also to give us a break every once in a while, you know. So I'm actually interested in your insights about how you think Safe Track's been going so far. So far, so good. I think the general manager has uh, actually taken a, a really strong approach. You know, someone needed to make tough decisions that, frankly, previous general managers were scared to touch. I agree. He's doing what previous general managers didn't do on a number of levels when it comes to management shakeup, when it comes to track time for maintenance crews. And uh, people, of course, have a reaction when you shut down the system early or you're not going to do special events. Well, come on, we need these trains. But he's saying, well, that's how we've been operating for decades and can't do it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at why Metro is doing this whole uh, you know, safe track plan, the whole idea here was that maintenance workers weren't getting enough time on the tracks to actually get the repairs. And here's something that really gets lost in all of this mix, I think, is that a lot of people don't understand the setup and the breakdown of the actual equipment. Think if you were doing construction on your house. You don't just get in there and start hammering nails away. You usually have to bring in equipment. Things have to be lined up properly, and all of that takes time. So really, Metro was only getting a few hours you know, overnight or on the weekend to really do what needed to be heavy lifting. So uh, they're in there doing the, the big stuff now. The key question will be whether all of this pays off. And the lead up to Safe Track, we in the news media, among others, thought this was going to be really disruptive. And it has been, but it hasn't been chaotic, right? I mean, people are staying away from the system. I think that's why Safe Track's been working so far. Well, I think generally in the Washington region, if you give people enough heads up and you let them know what's going on, and Safe Track has gotten tons of coverage, so everybody pretty much knows about what's happening, then people heed the advice. They can either telework, they can find another way to get around. It's those unexpected events which really cripple us, like an unexpected snowstorm that drops, you know, an inch or two in a, of ice in a short amount of time or something like that. Uh, those are the things that we can't predict. Um, but when you give people enough time to make a plan, which the general manager did, uh, then you really have no excuse not to adjust your schedule. And that's what a lot of people have done. And that adjustment continues as surge number three disrupts commutes in northern Virginia. It's the blue and yellow lines shut down between Braddock Road and Reagan National Airport. Adam, I'm out here at Braddock Road Station. It opened in 1983, and I'm looking at some beat-up old railroad ties. They look like they've been here since 1983. 
You know, we've talked so much in recent months about how bad Metro Rail has been. I'm always surprised when I run into riders who just shrug their shoulders when we ask them about Metro Rail. Gary Sarnoff is one of them. He's been using the train for 11 years. He takes it from here to Capitol South Station. And he says, safe track, no biggie. Well, I mean, I'm looking at these railroad ties, as you pointed out to me. It looks to me like it needs to be done. So, yes, I think it's a good idea that they're doing this. So you've been using Metro Rail for 11 years. Has the system gotten worse in your view over that time? I think it's about the same. Really? Except for costs, of course. <laughs> so many people say services deteriorated. Right? I didn't uh, I realize that. To me, it feels like it's the same. Yeah, you just hop on it every day and, you know, you take it to where you have to go and you, you come back. And, you know, to me, it's, it's been the same. So as we embark on surges number three and four, a sense of normalcy, if that's the right word, is starting to set in. Riders are greeting these disruptions with resignation. They say they understand it's necessary and they applaud the new general manager for making the tough decisions. When we continue on the Metropocalypse, we'll speak to a couple of transit and development experts about the future of Metro. Where will the system be in 10 years, long after Safe Track is over? This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. We continue on Metropocalypse. I'm joined by NBC4's Adam Tuss today. Last episode, we looked back to the 80s and 90s and the decisions that have left Metro Rail in a state of disarray and disrepair. Today, we're looking ahead to 2026, a time when Metro Rail expects to run 100% eight-car trains in rush hour. Its riders will have come back. Its mechanical problems, hopefully a thing of the past. But urban mobility will continue to change and give people transportation alternatives to the subway. Let's talk about it with Chris Leinberger, transportation and development expert at the George Washington University and Smart Growth America. And also here with us, Gabe Klein, former chief of the transportation departments in the District of Columbia and Chicago, author of Startup City. He's also a special venture partner with Fontanalis Partners, an investor in mobility and technology platforms, including Lyft. And Gabe, next time you come in here, we're going to shorten your title. Yeah, you need another title, man. That's ridiculous. And Chris Leinberger, thanks for being here. So let's start with you, Chris. There are millions of square feet of real estate development coming in your metro station, so the argument goes riders will come back. Is it that simple? Yes. Basically, almost all of the development in the last six years, 91% of it, went to metro station accessible locations. Though that 91% is going to 1% of our land in the metro region. That's it. That's our future, and metro serves it, and it's our lifeblood of this economy. Frankly, that's a frightening thought. If you look at metro right now and you think about where they have to get to 
and what they carry right now and what they really have to make themselves become. Absolutely. But look, 88% of uh, people moving to the district are not bringing a car or buying a car, which correlates very well with, with Chris's number. So this is the uh, gift that keeps on giving, Metro, and we've got to invest in it. Like high-capacity, high-quality transit, no matter where you go in the world, is absolutely key to growth. So it's 2026, right? Safe track is way in our rearview mirrors, right? And all this real estate development is happening, and Metro is getting its riders back. We'll set that as the stage, correct? But even if Metro does gain riders, its expenses are climbing at a rate, and they've already forecasted this out for the next five to ten years, that don't keep up with the expected fare revenue increases. Mm -hmm. Both of you, Chris Leinberger and Gabe Klein, have talked about privatizing or concessioning operations or maintenance to save money. Is that in Metro's future? The big mover on the cost side is to balance the system. That, and this is also, from a social equity point of view, a crucial thing to do. We need more jobs in Prince George's County. And that will allow the outgoing trains in the morning to be full at marginal cost. Metro's done the research, a really impressive and important study, that says that if they get a balanced system, meaning that there's no more rush hour, it's just both, both ways have full capacity, that you turn a $300 million deficit into a $400 million profit. $400 million per year operating profit results in 8 to $10 billion worth of new capital money that can be found. Right. Well, thinking about people going every which way for a rush hour seems great, but you still have to get over the fact of territories and how territorial this whole area has been. And as long as I've been covering Metro, which is over a decade, um, it's always been about territories. D.C. has protected itself. Virginia has protected itself. Maryland has protected itself. You know, you're talking about Prince George's County, and they want to get the FBI to come out to them. You know, that's one of the things. But so does Springfield. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you look at Tyson's Corner and what's going on there. It's amazing. And it, that is directly because of the metro rail system going through there. But the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors chairman has made no bones about it that she wants to compete with downtown Washington. Mm. So until you eliminate those borders, right, and we still and we start thinking regionally as one whole system, then you got a bigger problem. No question. By the way, our regional competition is much less than any other metro area in the country. We only have seven jurisdictions. Chicago has 328. My view of this is that it's like the infield of a baseball team. And there's a role for the first baseman, there's a role for the pitcher, there's a role for the shortstop. And those are the walkable urban transit-served places. And, yeah, they are going to be pop-up balls that maybe they're going to actually uh, compete on. But for the most part, we need a healthy first baseman, we need a healthy pitcher, we need a healthy third baseman. And that is, you know, Springfield and Prince George's County and the uh, district for us to economically do well. And, you know, more than anything, I travel all over the place. Chris does, too. I mean, you see this um, issue of investing versus spending. So you see people focused on, like, what's going to happen this year? Because I'm a politician, right? And I'm trying to get reelected. Yep. And we got to take a longer view on this. You know, these projects, like um, Martin was talking about, you know, some of them are 10 years away. Um, I was talking to the, the CEO of, of Japan East Railways, which, um, by the way, operates the train systems in Tokyo, which carry 40 million people a day back and forth and all over the place. And he said, we have a 100-year plan, but we execute in like one and two-year increments. And that's how we tried to run things at 
dot and c dot right we have a long-term vision then you got to take it and you got to put it into two-year plans that you knock out during a political cycle so before we move on to talking about where metro rail is going to fit in the evolving urban mobility ecosystem that's a popular word these days ecosystem Mm -hmm. one last word about this issue of privatizing or concessioning. Gabe, first, just briefly define concessioning based on your experience around the world. Sure. Um, When you say concessioning, people think that you're selling the system to the private sector. And that's not actually what typically happens. Let's take Singapore for an example. Um, They capitalized the system, meaning the government, you know, invested in it, built it, with, with the private sector, obviously, you know, it's always built by the private sector. And then what they did is they turned it over to the private sector to operate it with a very high SLA or service level agreement. So they have to meet certain service level standards. Now, some systems, they will give control of marketing and, you know, all of it, and then say, hey, if you make money, we make money. If the system is profitable, we share the profits. But Chris Leinberger, we're a union town here, the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 689. But you've told me in the past Paris is a union town, and Mm -hmm. they have a a privatized or a concessioned operation system for their rail. Absolutely. And also, they have an automated rail system. We got rid of manually operated elevators, oh, hmm, 60 years ago. (laughs) We still have manually operated trains. Makes no sense. In Paris... They have decreased the costs by 40% and increased the capacity by 50% by automating the trains. So Paris has two lines that are fully automated. Not one person lost their job in that transition. So you have to you know, do it slowly and do it in a methodical fashion. But we have to automate our train systems. It needs to start with the red line because that's the one that is the most intended. Also, I just want to mention that Um, the company that runs the Paris transit operations has investment from the government. So the government partially owns the company. So we need to think differently about how public and private operate. You can create a third party, which, by the way, that third party now operates systems all over the world. All right, so let's picture 2026, 2036, 2046. Will I still be alive? I don't know. Um, Picture the Beltway and D.C. streets. Every car, robotic, autonomous, no one's driving them. First, let's listen to Jeff Plungis. He's a reporter for Bloomberg. I spoke to him yesterday about whether this is a reality that's coming, autonomous vehicles being everywhere. We will see autonomous cars on the roads, I think, sooner than people think. The technology is already here. It's, it, is, it is pretty solid. It's being demonstrated. But the, nobody is going to flip a switch where all of the gasoline-powered cars are going to disappear overnight. Are autonomous vehicles a threat to public transportation systems? I would say no. They will work in tandem together. Transportation is really, it's about not one option, but like every option. So Gabe Klein, where are we when it comes to autonomous vehicles? And if they're everywhere, will people need to take the subway anymore? Um, They will be everywhere sooner than people think. And yes, we're going to need the subway. My biggest fear is that we're going to degrade the level of service to the point where even progressives that support transportation say, well, why would we re-up? Why would we put $5 billion more into the MBTA or $5 billion in, in a metro? This is a national problem that we have. And you don't see it in a lot of other countries where they have maintained their systems. They understand the value of it. We have tried to put the majority of our money into the auto-centric network. And we are suffering as a result. But 
my fear is that we will let some of our transit systems die. And I hope that doesn't happen. I think that the bus in many cases, the lower quality like suburban bus service in some of our city bus service actually needs to die. And I think we'll find better ways to move those people at a lot lower cost. But I think the high quality transit is, is so key to the way we live our lives. It's how we organize ourselves. And Chris is an expert on this. And so it would be devastating if we didn't invest as I say, it is the lifeblood. Not investing in Metro would be akin in the 70s to not building and maintaining the Beltway. And by the way, the Beltway is in deep trouble as well. Yeah, it's uh, falling apart. It's falling apart. And it has to be fundamentally taken down to the dirt and rebuilt lane by lane while millions of people use it daily. So that it's going to cost so much more. But how do you feel about autonomous vehicles? The idea is they will reduce accidents, reduce congestion because they Autonomous, operate efficiently yeah. down the highways. And so why would anyone then leave their suburban large home and, and move in closer? Because the market wants walkable urban places. They want to be able to walk to 30 restaurants. They want to be able to ideally walk to work. Americans think in terms of only one transportation system. They have cars and trucks. And then all the rest are known as, quote, alternative transportation for all those hippie and weirdos that want alternatives. You just described Gabe Klein. Exactly. I know. Yeah. I've that, tried to mainstream fair. all that. I know. <laughs> so, so you don't have to be a hippie to get on a bike anymore. So do we really know how autonomous vehicles yes. are going to change society yet? Yes and no. I mean, I think there's a good chance that in 2026 and beyond, um, or let's say 2030, that uh, D.C. will not have cars operating in its core. Cars driven by people. Uh, you look at Oslo. Uh, they've said they're banning uh, cars driven by people in 2019. There's six other European cities that are looking by, you know, in the 2020s. And then all EU cities in the core will get rid of cars by 2050. So in their world, the autonomous car actually doesn't even play a big role in the downtown, right? But I think once people see how safe a city can be when you build around walking, biking, and transit, and then you use autonomous vehicles around the perimeter of the core, people will demand it. And so that's the great thing about where we are. When you combine the business models and the technology with the quality of life that people want, they will dictate that people don't buy cars anymore because the capital investment won't be needed. Gabe Klein and Chris Leinberger, thank you both for joining us on the Metropocalypse. Woohoo! Woohoo indeed. We've been talking about driverless cars helping people get around and making cities more livable, but the number one benefit is supposed to be safety. Federal officials say self-driving cars can dramatically reduce the number of people killed in our roads. The current figure is 35,000 fatalities a year. Before we wrap up episode six already of Metropocalypse, time for a listener question. Sebastian Silva asked how the funding formula for Metro works. We know there's no dedicated funding stream like a tax, and each jurisdiction has its own way to pay. So first, the formula. It's based on population, system assets in each jurisdiction, like stations, and number of riders. And here's how each jurisdiction deals with coming up with the money. In Maryland, the state pays on behalf of Montgomery in Prince George's County. The district uses its tax revenues, and in Virginia, the local governments in Arlington, Alexandria, and Fairfax counties pay for Metro. The federal government does not pay anything to run the system. Leif Dorms Joe has an interesting perspective on this. He runs the District Department of Transportation, and he also sits on the Metro Board of Directors. We asked him whether Metro needs a dedicated or different funding structure. 
You know, I think that there's a lot of merit to the position that WMATA would benefit from having a dedicated source of funding, whether or not that uh, source of funding covers both operating or ca- or capital is, you know, something that I think we'll have to work out over time. But certainly there's a model of regional and federal participation with the existing legislation that was passed, I think, in 2008. Uh, which is a 10-year program of investment where Maryland, the District, Commonwealth of Virginia, and the federal government put in proportionate shares to a capital uh, programming. uh, $300 million per year for 10 years. That was, you are correct, passed in 2008, and it's expiring in 2018. So I think that that model is something worth building off of. Um, I think it, one, needs to be extended. We need to make sure that the federal participation continues through the entire 10-year program. But I think that doubling that uh, amount of investment or finding the right ratio in terms of an increase is the pathway that uh, makes the most sense. DDOT's Leif Dormsjo. And that's it for this episode. Thanks to Adam Tuss for coming by. Next week, we'll tackle two big questions from our Metropocalypse Facebook group. Why are the speakers and PA systems so awful on some trains? And what's wrong with the air conditioning on the new rail cars? And we know you've got plenty of questions about Metro, but what about how we put together this podcast? Join us at Kramer Books in DuPont Circle, Monday, July 11th. It's Metropocalypse Live. It's free, and you can find out more at our Metropocalypse Facebook group. And please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It'll help other Metro riders find us. Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney, John Ogolnik, Jacob Fenston, Joe Arminski, and Chris Chester. Our engineer has been Meg Bunting. Andy McDaniel is WAMU's Director of Content. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. All the music from today's episode came from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack. You heard tracks by AXB, Kaz and the Day Laborers, Why Told, and Kokai. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCaro. Thanks for listening. <laughs>